0: Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today's guest is Matt Blumberg, co-author of Startup CXO. Matt, welcome.
1: Thanks, Mark. Great to be here.
0: I like the t-shirt. I got to get
1: one of those. uh, I uh, I am always on brand. Uh, our our, uh, um, our business is—I'm uh, uh, sure you'll we'll ask about it at some point here—but our business is a very is a very personal uh, human business, and I spend all day on Zoom and all day, uh, you know, talking to someone that's a, a stakeholder for us. So I decided at the beginning it would be—it's um, easy, especially working from home as we're all doing for the most part still—to uh, just buy five bolster T-shirts and uh, make that my uh, uh, my easy to choose outfit in the morning.
0: I think I should have a Best Business Minds t-shirt. I think you're right about that. I need to think more about, about that at all times, for sure. OK, so let's first start off with your background. Give us a little bit about your background.
1: Yeah, um, yeah. so real quickly, the rundown from basically from college, so my whole working uh, experience. I did a couple of years in management consulting, a couple of years in venture capital. Uh, and um, then in early 1995, I was hired by a small cap uh, public company that was a sort of a tech media <clears throat> interactive services company before there was really an internet um, called Moviefone that was in the uh, business of doing these branded central- I remember it. Telephone numbers. Um, yeah. I remember like 777 film. Yeah. Um, uh, so it was a pre-internet interactive services company. Um, and uh, they basically hired me to figure out what the internet was for them and what it meant and what they should do. and. Um, you know, I ended up being the GM of their internet business from '95, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, so I wasn't the founder, but I was of the company. But I was on the executive team. Uh, kind of founded the internet business. Um, we sold the company in '99 to AOL um, at kind of the peak of the dot-com one uh, era. Um, I then started a company in '99 called Return Path, which was in the email marketing space. Um, ran it and scaled it. Uh, over the course of twenty years, sold it in two thousand nineteen, and then um, and that business got to be decent scale for a for a startup. It was about a hundred million in revenue and about five hundred employees and global and um, very good brand in the email business. Uh, and then <clears throat> a team uh, from Return Path and I uh, started bolster together in twenty twenty. Um, and I've been on um, a lot of experience on boards. I've been on a bunch of different boards over the years, public, private, nonprofit. Um, we uh, started a nonprofit at Return Path, uh, sort of incubated it at Return Path and then spun it out uh, into an independent uh, nonprofit called uh, Path Forward uh, back in 2016 that, that helps um, moms get back to work after a career break. Uh, so it's a structured returnship or return to work program. Uh that uh, I still chair today as well. Oh, I need to connect you
0: with a woman who has started a program to connect moms who are stay-at-home moms but still want to be involved in the workspace. So you might Absolutely. be able to be a good uh advisory board member for her, or at least give her some good insights. So that'd be great. So let's talk about the book. Why did you uh co-author this book?
1: Um the so I, I wrote a book. I've written a blog for a long time, like since 2003 or 2004. Now that's called StartupCEO.com about really the journey of being an entrepreneur. Um, I turned that into a book called Startup CEO, which was published first in 2013, and is really meant to be like a like a instruction manual. If you've never been a CEO before, if you're first, you know, if you're a founder, first time CEO, it's like 60 chapters of how to do X, Y, Z. Really short. Um, practical tactical advice, and um, I, I I had in my head when I wrote it <clears throat> this sequel, which um, I didn't get together until last year, which is called Startup CXO. And CXO, not everyone kind of understands what that means. It basically means chief anything officer, like chief fill in the blank officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a shorthand for you know for executive of any kind. Um, so Startup CXO is a, a uh, is a sequel in that it is also an instruction manual, um, but it's kind of a book of books. So it's, it's an instruction manual for everyone on the executive team. There are 20 chapters about how to be a CFO of a startup, 20 chapters about how to be a head of sales at a startup, head of HR, head of business development, head of engineering, head of product, et cetera. They're like eight or nine sections. Um, and within each section, it's really meant to be um, an instruction manual for the person who's doing that job for the first time. Lots of startups have people that are doing that CXO job for the first time. Yeah. Um, it's also meant to be um, kind of a, a startup, uh, a, a, an instruction manual for a CEO in how to think about managing that function, how to hire for it, what you're looking for, what the person needs to be doing, how you need to hold them accountable. Um, and then it's. I would say it's also a little bit of a, a, um, of a guide for... Um, colleagues of how to engage with that function, right? So the, the head of sales should read the sales section, but should also really read the marketing section and read the finance section, read the product section. So they understand the world of the people around them. Um, and then finally, it's, it's I think, a good guide for people early in their career who are trying to figure out what their next step is. So, you know, if you're a sales rep and you're interested in sales management and sales leadership someday, um, the you know, getting your arms around everything in the sales department and where you need to learn and build skills and grow in order to advance your career um, in that department is, in in the book's kind of a, a roadmap for that as well.
0: Well, that's what I liked about the book, and especially what you just mentioned, where understanding all the other functions, because I think many times, you know, sales doesn't understand IT, that doesn't understand uh, research and development, and therefore think uh, why are we giving these guys so much money or or space or whatever that is? Because they really don't understand how all the parts fit together. And you write about kids understanding where they want to go and where they're going to fit in for their careers. This book is great for great for that as well. So let's talk about this. Um, you uh, your first start was Return Path, correct?
1: Uh, correct.
0: Yeah. And what did you learn from that experience that changed, that, uh, that that surprised you and encouraged you to go and continue being an entrepreneur with Gloucester and um, uh, Bolster? And also
1: kind of explain the mission of that company as well. Yeah, it's, it, it is actually related. I mean, the return path journey was long, it was 20 years. And um, one of my theses on the way into that business Um, And one of the reasons I wanted to become an entrepreneur in the first place um, was uh, that, um, you know, you have to wind the clock back a little bit in your mind to to 1999. Um, The business world was not employee centric in 1999. And you could argue that it's still not employee centric today. Um, but I had <clears throat> worked at these, these different jobs earlier in my career that were all knowledge worker jobs, right? Consulting, venture capital, you know, interactive services company, um, right. They all had, um, you know, people were literally the most important thing in the business and they all said, they had that on the wall somewhere, right? Our people are our most important assets. Our assets walk out the building at five o'clock every day, some flavor of that as, as like a value. Um, but, I, I never felt like any of those organizations really got that and internalized that, and you know, I felt like in a lot of ways um, they still treated their employees the way you would treat employees, like on the on the factory floor in the 1800s. Um, so part of the thing that I wanted to achieve in in starting a business was really building a different kind of workplace and a workplace that valued its people and really invested in its people and and made that a competitive advantage. And that was a big learning over the 20 years of return path that at, at every turn, um, when we made decisions that involved people, um, you know, if it was, it was just top of mind for us to be people first, to think about employee engagement, to think about the impact of decisions on people, to help people grow and build their careers. And, and that, um, that type of culture and philosophy really um, uh, did wonders for that business. Um, and. The second part of your question is interesting because it is it very related to the business at Bolster. Um, my co-founders and I all worked at Return Path for many years. So we, we knew marketing technology cold and could have easily started a new business in MarTech and didn't want to. What we wanted to do was start a business to help other startups advance their leadership teams and advance their cultures and advance their boards. Um, and that's really what Bolster is. So Bolster is an online marketplace uh, it's a marketplace for executive talent, and it's a marketplace to, exec, to, to connect that talent to startups and scale-ups. Uh, so our mission is really to help empower founders and, and advance the startup economy. Uh, we work with teeny tiny startups, and we work with $100 million companies that are probably not startups anymore, but we're startups startups. Um, but, uh, you know, we work to really help them scale their leadership teams and scale their cultures and scale themselves as leaders and scale their boards. So very related to the experience of return path.
0: As I read the book and how you mentioned each section of the business has a unique value. Is there one area that if you're going to put little resources in at the start of the business, what would that be?
1: You know, my answer is going to be HR and, um, it's not the obvious thing. Product is obvious, right? You don't have a product, you don't have a business. Um, But um, uh, whether your investment in HR is in an HR leader or a contractor to do that part-time, like a fractional HR leader, or it's just an investment of your time as the founder or time getting a coach involved, um, investing in people and, and a robust people function earlier than you would think, I think is a, is a really smart investment. It's an investment in your talent in the organization. Many entrepreneurs
0: feel they want to get the least expensive employees, which usually means ones with little experience. What do you think about that as a way to keep costs down and mold people into the culture you're trying to create?
1: Um, you know, I have kind of mixed thoughts on that. On, you know, the the if I'm wearing my bolster CEO hat, the self-serving answer is, um, Hey, use fractional executives. Um, they're cheap and because they're not full-time and they don't usually get equity and they give you the experience you need and use them to help bolster, uh, which is the name of the company, uh, your, uh, more junior startup team. Um, but the, 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 the non bolster answer is, um, you know, in the early days, you just have to have a mix. Like you got to have some people that know what they're doing and some people that are early in their career. And, and, um, uh, and you know that mix changes as you get as you get bigger, but it doesn't necessarily change a lot. I mean, as companies scale, um, if they're scaling well, they're building a, uh, a talent engine that's really good at bringing in early stage people and training them up. Uh, so whether you're you know early stage or mid stage or late stage, you, you have to invest in training and co- and coaching and good management and leadership um, to go with uh, the people who come in with less experience. Um, and we found at Return Path, we had a really good model that was grooved by the end around our uh, sort of leadership level in the business. Um, At the end of the company, we had something like 12 people on the executive team, and I think other than the three founders, every single one of them was promoted from within. Um, They were people that we hired in. A couple of them had been at the company forever and started as junior, and we sort of trained them up, but a lot of them we hired in at kind of that, Director level, or um, you know, VP level, or manager level, um, and then to your point, Mark, um, we had the opportunity to to kind of mold them into the culture, to imprint the culture on them um, over the course of a few years, and grow them into senior people. And um, you know that uh, um, that model worked incredibly well for us. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. I've
0: seen I've actually hired people who were super experienced. That were horrible in the startup, and I've had uh, students from my own class who were brilliant uh, and really got it quickly and came up with great ideas that helped propel the company. Um, When hiring salespeople, should you go with entrepreneurs who work with a name brand company, or one or a different type of person? What do you look for when you're
1: hiring salespeople? Yeah, um, it's really it's an interesting topic. I think um, there's always the lure of like, oh, this person worked at Oracle, right? They know how to sell. And like, maybe is the answer. Um, but it may be that they worked in a selling machine that, that um, you know, supported them in ways that you can't support them as, a, as an entrepreneur. Um, I think the, um, uh, you know, I, I sort of use this metaphor when I think about the, the uh, different stages of, Enterprise uh, selling or sales organizations, um, and and I'll, I'll do the shorthand version of it, which is you go from selling on whiteboard to selling on PowerPoint or I guess Google Slides to selling on PDF. So selling on whiteboard is what you do as a founder. You literally walk into a prospect and you're drawing shit on the board. Excuse me, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, you know you're making things up and you you know you're you're connecting you know in that creative moment with the, with the the client. Um, that gives way as you get bigger to selling with slides or selling with PowerPoint, um, where you can have sales reps that you train, but they really need to be like senior business development people who, um, you know, who know how to take product that's still half-baked and turn it into a, a sales process. Uh, and I, I think the, um, you know, the way to think about that, the reason I call it selling on PowerPoint or selling with slides is um, they, they approach every sales call like it's a new thing. And, and they think like, oh, well, let me take that slide from that deck and that slide from that deck and that slide from that deck. And that's what's going to make this one work. And then ultimately, stage three is selling with PDF. And that's when like you're a sales machine. You have one PDF, maybe you have different ones for different segments, but you have a PDF, you have a call script, you can hire junior salespeople and you hand them that stuff and they go. Um, and you know, when you when you're a, a startup hiring salespeople, you need to know which stage you're at and make sure you're hiring the right people for that stage. And if you're at whiteboard trying to move to PowerPoint, or you're squarely in PowerPoint, and you've got to live through that for a few years, you can't hire people that have only worked in places where they're selling with PDF. You have to hire people that are capable of doing that almost quasi evangelist founder like sale.
0: Um, we have a question from the audience. What do you recommend as founder equity to attract very early stage new talent.
1: Um, Robert, I want to ask a clarification. Do you mean um do you mean if you're a founder looking for a co-founder? No,
0: no, he means, or, you know, when you're hiring people yeah. and and you know, how much equity do you give them? Or, you know, how do you go and get top tier talent
1: uh, and how to use that equity to do it? You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that's been um, that's been written about that, and um, uh, you know, I think the, the the quick answer is you have to you have to think about it um, like you're budgeting equity the way you would build a budget, and think about it in kind of layers. So, you know, there are a couple people that are going to be at that top layer that get you know, get a, a lot more than the next layer, and there are many more people at the next layer, and even more people at the next layer. So, you can use equity. Um, you just have to be smart about how you're balancing out how much experience with how much equity. So like if you're trying to hire a CXO, right? You're, you're trying to hire a, a leader and you're really early stage, um, you, know, you may be giving them a couple percentage points of the company. Um, if you're just trying to hire a great sales rep, um, you don't necessarily have to give them a couple percentage points of the company. You, you're talking about then giving them you know, two-tenths of a point or three-tenths of a point or something like that. I don't know that there's a, a magic formula, but I'd encourage you to think about it in, in layers, basically.
0: No, I, I agree with you. I worked for a CEO of a big biotech company, it was a company called Senecor, who said he was running an IT company that worked on biotech healthcare problems. You had a debate at your last company about whether you were sales driven or product driven, how do you determine to know which one you are or want to be?
1: Yeah, it, it's, um, I remember that debate. I think I, I think I wrote about that in both books actually. And um, it was, uh, it's, I think it's a little more of an academic debate. Like the, the debate we had at the board level was, are you Apple or are you Oracle, right? Apple is a product company. They care mostly about their products, their products, you know, sell themselves, people camp out overnight in line to, you know, be the first one to get the new I, whatever. And, you know, whereas Oracle is famous for being a sales machine, right? They, you drop anything into the sales machine and it gets, you know, stuffed through the channel. Um, And I think the reality is for most, most normal companies, it is a sliding scale. You're, you're, you have to do both well enough to, uh, to get yourself, um, Uh, you know, working in in life and, you know, being all sales is hard and it's not very satisfying. Like ultimately you want to solve customer problems and you do that by having good product. Um, The way we resolve that debate, I think, is, um, as I said, we're a people company. Um, So we're not a product company or a sales company. We're both of those, but because we're a people company.
0: So how do you get the different leaders fighting for their own budgets? And we talked about this before everybody came on, not to mention each uh, leader might think they should be the future leader of the company to see the big picture and work together.
1: Well, um, yeah. First thing is, if you have people that are uh, spending all of their time fighting for their own budgets and fighting against each other, you probably have the wrong people. Um, But you might be leading them the wrong way as well. And um, the the concept that I've always gravitated to um, is what I call the first team concept. And this is one that um, uh, uh, another uh, uh, business guru and business book writer named Patrick Lencioni has written about quite a bit. Um, And uh, his his best book about this is called The Five Dysfunctions of a Leadership Team, um, which is a fantastic book. Uh, the concept of first team is um, the executive team needs to be the first team of every executive who sits on that team. So if you manage your leadership team, like it's the United Nations, and each department head comes in as the head of their delegation, then you're managing a team that's fighting. They're fighting for budgets. They're fighting for airtime. They're fighting for primacy. If you manage your executive team as the first team, um, where first and foremost, the people sitting on it are executives who, who collaborate together to run the company, um, you don't end up with those turf wars. Yeah, and they can rip the company apart.
0: Uh, many Many of the people on this call are CEOs of entrepreneurial companies, and you talk about three steps for new leaders to be effective. What should the CEO screen for, and how should the CEO prepare the future leader to be successful,
1: uh, you know, I I think, um, and, and I wrote about this in Startup CXO that uh, the uh, I, I sort of talked about th- I think three different three different rules of three. One is that uh, senior executives or CXOs have three roles, right? They're on their they're on the executive team, right? That's their first team. They are the head of their department, and then they're also just generally a leader in the company. Um, so you're, you're authorized, I think, as, the, as a leader in the company. If you see something, you, you say something. It doesn't matter if the person reports up to you or not. Um, I also talk in the book about the sort of three jobs, very broadly speaking, that CXOs have to do. Um, and those are, you know, number one, master the details. So understand everything that's going on in your department. Number two is form your strategic approach. What is your department's mission? What is your department's ethos? How is your department going to drive the business forward? Um, And then finally, uh, as a CXO, you have to be able to look around the corner and see what's coming next and be planful a year out, two years out, three years out, both about your department's activities and really your own role and your own uh, skills uh, and your own leadership profile. So, you know, when it comes to um, you know sort of how you screen for those things as you're interviewing uh, potential executives to join your team, um, I think it's really two things. You're screening for that um, for that framework approach. When I talk about you know being able to have a strategic approach to your department, you want to put someone in a leadership job that has a theory of the game, right? What is their department going to be all about? How does their department fit into the company? What's that framework? Um, and then you know, screening for the ability to see around corners, um, I actually think is easier than it sounds. So, if you're a Series B company and you're hiring a head of marketing, you know what the job is today. Ask them in the interview process what the job is going to be like in two years and see what you get back. And one of two, one of three things will happen. They either won't know and will fumble around the answer, when you, in which case you don't hire them, they will know because they've seen it before. And they'll say, well, now we need to focus on X, Y, Z. In two years, we're going to need to focus on PDQ. Um, or uh, if they don't really know what's around the corner, at least what you're looking for is a thoughtful response of like, I know what today's world is. And here's what I will do to figure out what's what the world's going to be like in two years. Because I don't know, and you don't know either. But here's together the journey we're going to take to get there.
0: You know, I wondered, you were a venture capitalist at one point you think you'd be a much better VC now that you've run companies? Because so many VCs uh, come from investment backgrounds, but don't have up, uh, actual line operating experience. you think you'd be better at that job now um, based on your experience of actually running a company? I don't know. I
1: think I would be
0: a good operating partner somewhere. Um, and- but maybe not necessarily evaluating the companies, because I, I know that uh, when I work with VC funds, um, the ones who didn't come from entrepreneurial backgrounds said they, they worried about the entrepreneur would be too soft on the portfolio companies because they would be too empathetic. And the ones who didn't wouldn't have that kind of empathy and just would look at the numbers and be more
1: black and white. Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, I think. Um, uh I don't know that I agree with with that point. Although I could see how an operator would fall into that, um, I you know I think that I think the challenge you have as an operator as a venture capitalist, an operator who moves into that role, and some of them make that transition really effectively. Um, is the I would do it differently challenge, mm-hmm. and um, you know sometimes that, that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean the person's not doing it the right way just because you would do it differently. I like to think I would be good at that. Actually, one of the things we're doing at, um, at Bolster is, and this is a little advanced news, I think it's going to come out probably in January is we're actually standing up a venture fund. Uh, so I'm, I'm about to be in to some extent in the world of, of, of both uh, and we'll, we'll see how it goes. So a
0: question from the audience. What are the concerns yeah. when the members of a startup executives team are not from the products industry? And how do you overcome those concerns?
1: Yeah, I um, you know, when when I think about hiring executives or hiring board members, um, I, I sort of look at it with a few different dimensions. Uh, there's do they have industry experience? Do they have the right functional experience? Um, do they have the right customer set experience? So, uh, you know, maybe they've been in sales, but they've done enterprise selling, and you're selling to SMBs. Um, and then the fourth thing is, do they have the right stage experience? Um, So have they worked at a company at your size and stage and made the transition to the next size and stage? It's rare that you're going to get all four of those things in the same person. Um, You want to get as many as you can. And um, I'm not sure I favor any one of those over the other ones, as long as you have a balance across your executive team. So you don't want a whole team where no one's got product experience, but you also don't want a whole team where everyone's got product experience, but no one's got the right customer set experience or uh, you know, or proper functional experience or stage-based experience. So I, I just, I, I, I reframe the question um, in that way uh, of, you know, thinking you've got to balance all those things out. So uh,
0: another question from the audience, I've read, uh, I read a startup's culture is created as soon as you hire your first employee, how important, and I think you write about this in your book, um, how important is culture to creating and scaling a successful startup
1: and I'm building a highly functioning CXO team. It is incredibly important. And your question is framed perfectly. Um, what I always say is your company has a culture from day one, whether or not you acknowledge it. And, um, and the more people you hire, the firmer the culture gets, right? It's like jello in the fridge, mm-hmm. uh, maybe liquid at one point, but it's not going to be liquid for long. And if you're not intentional about shaping it yourself. It is what it is, um, but you can be intentional about shaping it yourself, and it is unbelievably important uh, in terms of, uh, and I'll, I'll, put, I'll put the question in reverse order. First, it's important in terms of building a high-functioning leadership team, and it's important to, to scaling the company.
0: Another question from the audience, with hyper-growth companies need a strategic framework that uh, has well-defined process and KPIs to create better synergy within organization. What's your take on value management? I'm
1: not sure what um, I'm not sure what you mean by value management, Vimi. Um, so feel free to jump back into the chat on that. Um, you know, I, I think if if what you're saying is is it important to have values? Um, absolutely, and that's sort of my previous answer about culture. Um, if your question is, you know, is it important to have KPIs and defined processes with hypergrowth companies, or can you ignore them? because you, you're a hyper-growth company. The answer is you need them. And actually, the faster you're growing, the more you need them um, or things kind of spin out of control. Yeah, and we've seen high-growth companies uh, where that exactly
0: happens and then they end up replacing the founder because of that. Yeah. they write right here, value management and people, product, process, portfolio, performance, and processes.
1: Um, you know, again, if the-, the And profit. And profit. Um, again, if the answer is about values, like. You know, culture and values; those have to permeate everything you do, right? Um, you know, the, your values mean everything around people, around what kind of product you build and how you build it. Um, you know, around your uh, business processes. Um, and um, I'm sure I'm, I may not be understanding your question exactly, but and and then they wrote here
0: 360 value manage uh, value management. I'm not familiar with that. I'm not either. Are, yeah. So um, we'll have to look that up and maybe get back to her. Um, You have a section on every function in company. I thought the chapter written by your CFO was interesting. He writes about being more than a bean counter, all the various things you need to know, ranging from taxes to technology to interacting with investors. What's the profile of a successful CFO of an entrepreneurial company? And what should a leader screen for when selecting one, especially one that you need to think strategically and not just focus on saving money.
1: The um, uh, I, I think the the thing you want to screen for and that's like front of the profile is someone who has a philosophy around investment, not around cost. Um, now that doesn't mean that um, you want someone who spends money like a drunken sailor. You you want someone who is focused on that, but you want them focused with the lens of investment, right? I will spend an infinite amount of money on X, subject to how much money I have in the bank, as long as there's a good return on it. Um, and I think that philosophy is important. And I think, there, I think there are lots of CFOs who are probably very good CFOs who come at it more from like a cost or accounting perspective. Um, and I, I don't find that to be um, strategic enough for startups. Um, the, my longtime CFO and you know, sort of two time co-founder now, Jack, um, who wrote that section of the book, um, has this you know sort of his framework and his approach uh, to the job is finance as a partner. And how can he or his department as the company gets bigger, um, How can he help everyone else in the company make good decisions using data and numbers? Um, and I love that orientation. I think a lot of uh, entrepreneurs have uh, come across in large companies,
0: CFOs who are doctor No's, about everything, and yes. so in an entrepreneurial environment, you want them to be cautious. I mean, careful with the money because you know it's, it's it's not plentiful like your Microsoft or Amazon or some of the others. But at the same time, you want them to think strategically and be willing to spend uh, money to acquire customers or to build the next iteration and so forth. So I think that's you know, and and your guide clearly does that. Many times when I'm interviewing entrepreneurs raising capital, I ask them what is their gross margin followed by their net margin, and they rarely know the net margin, which I think is is more important. How critical do you think it is for the entrepreneur to know what makes this up? You know, know all the the formula here, so they're able to answer those questions.
1: I mean, it's real. It's real easy. Cash is king. Uh, you know, you're a startup unless unless you're a startup that's making money from day one. Uh, if you're burning money and you're in the cycle of raising more money, um, cash is king. And you know you can uh, you can look at at EBITDA all day long, but um, you know EBITDA and capitalizing of expenses just like it, it, it distorts the view of cash you have in the business. And uh, that is the only thing that matters. And your ability to forecast cash um, in your head uh, is pretty important as a founder, even if you're not a finance-oriented founder.
0: Oh, I agree with that. I mean, I've worked with many companies where we've gone in front of investors and they didn't know their own numbers and they weren't able to explain their own numbers and nothing drives number-oriented people like investors crazier. Even if you have the greatest idea, even if you have a lot of folks who love this idea, if you can't explain these numbers and, and have a good firm hold on where your cash is going, That scares the hell out of these uh, investors. And then they feel like maybe we, smart as you are, maybe we need to put a babysitter in to um, watch this. And certainly, they worry about whatever numbers you're showing them. Often, early stage companies have no idea what their valuation should be. Uh, What's your advice on arriving at the right one? Probably not exact valuation, but pretty close. And you you talked a little bit about that in the beginning here.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think they're they're there, there are two approaches to this, one is you either you, you go out and you get a bunch of offers and then you see what market is, um, or uh, you, uh, you, know, you follow the, the route of doing notes or safes. And I think th- there's a reason those have gotten so popular uh, for seed rounds and pre-seed rounds now, um, which is that uh, it's just a lot easier. It defers the conversation until a later date when there, you can actually have valuation metrics. Um, but you know, ultimately, the, when you're running a financing process, um, you just need to get multiple offers to the table, and then you figure out what market is, and whether you like it or not is, is a different story.
0: Yeah, we, uh, we had an entrepreneur, we have the Angel Venture Fair on Tuesday. I run that in Philadelphia with companies from across the country that are participating. And one of the uh, companies decided they're not going to present because an investor had said to them they don't want them. Uh, to present that they're going to work out a deal with them. And I said, you're putting yourself at a disadvantage by doing that. You want as many people bidding to invest in your company as you can. So you get the best possible deal. And also, once you do that, then you've uh, eliminated the, the, the need to get uh, to close a deal quickly. If you have a lot of folks who are interested, deals get closed quickly. If you right. are working with one, they stretch it out to the point where
1: now they're going to start dictating the terms to you, and that, that's especially true today. Um, you know, the, the the combination of how much money there is sort of floating around in the venture ecosystem, uh, with quite frankly the Zoom and the Zoom culture, means yeah. you can like spin up around and and, and get it done very very quickly. Um, you know, what, actually, one of the challenges today is that valuations are getting out of control. And um, it's really easy as a as a founder entrepreneur to say like I'm just going to chase the highest valuation possible, and like there, there's logic to that, right? It's the least amount of dilution. Maybe you get the most amount of cash in the door. Um, but uh, you know these people who are doing seed rounds at 50 or 100 million dollars um, are, I think, are setting themselves up for a problem down the road because you know those are investors. If you're a seed investor and you do a 100 million dollar valuation deal, like. What's your expectation of the next round when people start paying attention to financial metrics? Like it's it's really tough. Well, um, what's the um,
0: one, the real estate one uh, where you go and sit in the nice couches and so forth, and how that valuation got what reduced by like ninety percent because people bid it up so unrealistically high, not based on any real world uh, metrics, right? Yeah, so, uh, and. You're right in the sense if you want to get an investor who really understands your business and you feel like you can go to war with them, not yeah. just the one who's going to give you the highest valuation, because they're also the ones who're going to beat the crap out of you if you miss your quarterly number.
1: Absolutely, and look, as someone who has done a down round, let me tell you, that's one of the least fun things you can ever do. <laughs> it's 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 not as it's not as it's not as unfun as layoffs, but those are probably the top two.
0: Yeah, no question about it. It's horrible when you have to go through something like that. Do you think solo found, uh, founders are less attractive to investors? And do you recommend founders should try to get co-founders for improving probability of success and also to make uh, and also uh, to make the company more appealing to investors?
1: Yes, that is an unequivocal answer. Um, and. Um, and I don't know what the right formula is. If you're a technical co-founder, make sure you have a business co-founder. If you're a business co-founder, make sure you have a technical co-founder, at least. Um, by the way, having co-founders doesn't necessarily mean equal economics. But having people who are who, more than one person who is like a founding partner in the business, I think, is viewed very favorably by early stage investors. Yeah, I think so. And I think
0: one person should have more equity than the other, because I've seen not, that not work out when they both have the same amount of stock. And let's face it, you wouldn't have heard of Steve Jobs uh, without Steve Wozniak. Absolutely. Yeah. So Paul Allen. Some. Bill Gates yeah. and Paul Allen. Right. Yeah. You have to have uh, John Malone and uh, John Stockton and Carl Malone, right? In the section of selecting legal representation, you mentioned the need for the leader to outline what you need the attorney from the attorney and getting the attorneys where the bills. So bills don't get crazy and provide an estimate you can count on. Many leaders pick attorneys from their church, the Rotary Club, the Country Club. What do you recommend in finding the right attorney?
1: Yeah, you got to find someone who knows how to do the thing you need done. You know, you're negotiating a a financing, for example, against VCs. I shouldn't say against. You're negotiating it and documenting it with VCs. VCs do dozens of financings every year. Um, If you do not have a lawyer that knows how to do a venture financing, you have a problem on your hands. So you really do need to get someone that knows the thing that you're doing. They know what market is for different terms, um, and uh, and if you don't have someone like that, find one. Like a- ask the VC who they recommend. Um, you know, ask uh, other entrepreneurs. You know, ask seed investors. Um, so you know, I think that's really important. I think um, what's more of a question mark is like, do you use a big firm or not a big firm? And you know the question there is you know, the problem with huge firms is both that, that the bills are big, but it's also that you don't get a lot of partner attention as an early stage company. You'll get like a third year or fourth year associate working on your on your deal, and like maybe that's okay if you're doing a really simple, <clears throat> really simple deal, and you know you think you can at least have a couple hours of partner attention. That's probably okay. Um, we've had a lot of good success over the years. Um working with uh, you know kind of mid-tier firms, this is actually this is true in, uh, with accountants and auditors as well. you know, working at, at tiers, second tier, third tier firms where you get more partner attention, the bills are lower, you still get people that really know what they're doing.
0: How much of CXO's compensation should be tied to achieving their goals and how much to, uh, how much to their ability to work with the other CXOs? Ask another way, do the ends justify the means, which is a question from our audience.
1: Yeah, so um, my formula for this at Return Path, which I think worked really well, <laughs> was that um, the uh, the incentive compensation um, was a mix of personal MBOs and team MBOs. Um, and I think some years it was even a mix of like company metrics, executive team MBOs, and then individual. Um, and that's true even for head of sales. Um Obviously, head of sales has a very large commission plan or override that still had meaningful components on my team that were tied to team goals and tied to company metrics. Um, so I think if you're doing an incentive comp structure for for your executive team, and, and there's a question of whether those are productive or not in general, which I, I'll come back to in a second. But if you're doing one, um, I definitely recommend at least having a few bands of it. Um, so uh, you have different levers to uh, to manage, but you're sort of reinforcing that. First team concept that we talked about earlier of like you know you're you're not here just to represent the product department you're here as a member of the company's leadership team. Um, I've increasingly over the years come to the um, point of view though that incentive comp doesn't actually work well most of the time, uh, and that most of the time it is more complicated than it than it needs to be. Um, you know, that you're administering a, a program where everyone ends up getting a huge percentage of it anyway, or is extremely disappointed if they don't. Um, and in early stage companies, uh, you know, tying people to revenue numbers when you have no idea what your sales machine looks like and what your pipeline um, is going to be is a good way of, of, of screwing things up. <clears throat> but there's a real question other than, than salespeople. And I do think salespeople are often motivated by money. There's a real question in my mind of whether incentive compensation makes any difference at all for anyone other than salespeople. Um, and um, we, had, we ended up at the end of Return Path actually disbanding our incentive comp program for anyone in the company other than salespeople and sales leaders. Uh, even, executives, even executives did not have one. And, and uh, at Bolster, we're still really early stage, um, but no one has uh, uh, an incentive comp program. I
0: I did that in one of my ventures, and I found out that the people were so focused on bringing the sales that they had no interest in the customer retention. So I had to change the comp plan. That you know you couldn't bring in a hundred companies and lose ninety nine right. of them, and get this great compensation. You had to go and retain the ninety nine you bought, or a percentage of them, and, and, and in the change based on the absolutely percentage. yeah, but. Yeah. So if you folks are focused yeah. on by, that. By
1: the by the way, depending on your on your um, you know your structure too, if your head of sales is also the head of customer success and also carries the retention number, then your head of sales will make sure that that you know, you're only selling to people that really want to be there.
0: Yeah, and making sure they follow up. So I had one company that was in the software space, and they sold a bunch of the product, but no one ever followed up to make sure they were using it when it came time to renewing the agreement. Uh, 50% of them dropped out and they went back to the competitor. It was a nightmare. Uh, you wrote that the net uh, you wrote that next to the CEO and the heads of sales, the next or equally valued position is the head of marketing. What do you look for in the head of marketing and how do you measure their success?
1: I don't know that I exactly phrased it that way. I always I always am very careful to not value one executive position over the others so much. It really is a, a team sport. Um, but in any case, with marketing, um, you know I always look for someone who uh, has, first of all, has the right mix of art and science. Marketing is very much one part art and one part science. Um, uh, and what I mean by that is you have to have someone that has good creative sensibilities, but you also have someone that knows. You have to have someone that knows how to manage numbers um, and really has that philosophy um, of investment and return on investment as it relates to marketing. Um, I, I think one of the um, one of the things that a lot of CEOs don't get don't get right is making sure they're intentional about the kind of CMO or the kind of head of marketing they're looking for. And I've seen companies be very successful with strategic heads of marketing. I've seen companies be very successful with very tactical heads of marketing. Um, and uh, you know, it's just that's just a question. You know, are are you putting marketing at the nose or at the tail? Right? Are they? Is marketing also include strategy and market strategy, um, and segmentation and sizing and how are we going to reach different people? Um, or is marketing the tactical engine that's cranking out social and events and demand gen, et cetera? Again, uh, you know, you you can have a department that's focused on one or the other or both. You just need to know what it is you're looking for because there's nothing worse than having a tactical head of marketing that you're expecting to be strategic, or a strategic head of marketing that you're expecting to be tactical without staffing under the person the right way.
0: There's a section written by your chief people officer who wrote about how the head of HR has evolved. I think uh, I would think this position may be the second most important position after the CEO. What do you look for when hiring for that position, and what's the most important thing that the leader
1: of HR could do to enhance the competitive position of the company? You know, it's an incredibly important function if you care about people and talent, and um, uh, and you know, most businesses today can't afford not to care about people and talent. You know, this is a function that I think um, people take a lot more seriously than they used to. I certainly do. I think it's a very strategic function. And, um, you know, I think that in, in terms of a few things you can screen for or make sure that you're managing to in that function, one is that um, the person has a philosophy about building teams, not filling jobs, um, right? And, and really understanding, like, what's the mix of mix of skills you're looking for? How do people need to fit together in the organization, especially in the, in the early days? I think the second thing that you want um, is uh, an orientation around, coaching and around uh, growth and development, um, as opposed to a, an orientation around transactions and making sure that benefits and payroll work well. Um, and then finally, I think that probably the single thing that I found most impactful with the HR function in terms of helping scale an organization is when the head of HR understands that their job isn't just to be a a steward of the culture alongside you, although it is, but when they understand that their job is to weave the culture into all of the employee life cycle touch points so that the organization itself is the steward of its own culture. So what do I mean by that? If you're a strong values driven organization, you should be recruiting against those values interviewing against those values, onboarding people with training about the values and what they mean in your organization. You should be firing people if they're not holding to the values. You should be doing performance management against the values, compensation against the values. If you have a head of HR that gets that and that is, they believe, weaving your culture into business process all over the place, you will build a scalable culture. Interesting. So they have to think like the Yeah.
0: A um, question from the audience: How essential is an independent audit, defensible
1: 409A valuation for a startup? I think it's pretty important. I don't think you have to do them quarterly, which you do when you get bigger. But um, you know, I, I think I think once you're out of the founder stock stage, at least knocking out one per year um, is, is pretty important around issuing options. I mean, at the end of the day, there are two, two things that happen. Two things that can happen if you are giving options out below fair market value. Um, one is the employee can have a tax problem, and the other is that the company can have a tax problem. And um, you don't want to find out as you're getting acquired or going public that you have what they call a cheap stock issue. Um, you know, 409As are not required. What's required is that the board uses, you know, reasonable care to make a judgment about what fair market value is. If you're not going to get a 409A, at least document how you're arriving at what fair market value is, whether you're using comps or discounting for liquidity, I mean, look at a 409A and follow their methodology. But you know, if you're using Carta, for example, I think 409As are a couple thousand bucks, and you know, it's probably worth getting at least one a year to cover yourself.
0: Kathy Haley, your chief uh, people officer, wrote that every person you hire in the beginning has an outsized impact on the culture. And you talked a little bit about this earlier, but what's your feel about this? And how do you screen that their outsized personality doesn't cripple or hurt the it's culture? Just a lot,
1: I mean, it's just a lot of numbers. You, know? you have five people in the company, you, you hire a sixth person, they're 16% of the workforce. <laughs> uh, and uh, they do have an outsized impact on culture. You do have to interview against your values. Um, even if you don't have well-documented values, yet you know, even if they're not up on the wall and everyone's agreed to what they are, you know, as the founder, what you care about, and you've got to interview against those things. And uh, you know, you, I, I think you look—you can have a philosophy that is one strike and you're out, or two strikes and you're out, or three strikes and you're out. You can have a philosophy of coaching people or not coaching people, but um, ultimately, if if you have a bad values fit and a bad culture fit, um, it, it can be a disaster for your organization. And the faster you move those people out, the better. Hence, why you see sometimes CEOs get fired thirty days
0: into their jobs, uh, not realizing that they would be such a bad cultural fit.
1: Right? You see a lot. Of- right. Right. I mean that's that's a that's a really clear like uh, the the analogy I always use. Lots of people use is is uh, you know it's uh, doing an organ transplant. Right. Sometimes the body rejects the organ. Um, and sometimes a, a, a company rejects a new hire or a new executive. Did
0: you find that some of the people you, uh, you started with hit you know, the ceiling ability, you know, they hit the ceiling and based on the size of your organization or didn't fit into the mature organization
1: or how do you know when to make that change? Yeah, it, it absolutely happens. Um, I remember very vividly um, a year or so into the return path journey, we, I think we had 25 people in the company. And um, and one of our engineers quit, and he said he was quitting because we had become too corporate. And I sort of laughed because, like, we weren't corporate. We were not corporate we a twenty-five person company. We were a startup. We weren't corporate. But you know what he said was, well, you know, I remember in the early days we all used to sit around together and all make the decisions together, and now we don't anymore. You know, now you have a, a leadership team. And it's kind of an interesting frame. I, I got that from his perspective. It actually wasn't true. It's never. It was never the case that all people in the company made all decisions all the time. But it was feeling different to him, and he didn't like that feeling. Uh, and he self-selected out. And I think a lot of people will self-select out if um, you know if they're more comfortable at earlier stages. Um, but you know, helping ha- having that eye um, as you're doing whatever form of feedback or review process you have of. You know, is is the right person in the right role for the right stage of the company um, is is key.
0: What did you look for when did you have a,
1: a board of directors
0: or an advisory board?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I, I had a, a, a world class board at Return Path, and I'm I'm building what I believe and hope is a world class board here. So, at what did as well. you look
0: for when you were building those boards?
1: Um, so, not to not to plug the next book, <laughs> but um, I'm actually working on a book called Startup Startup Boards, which will be out in the middle of 2022 next year. Uh, and I'm doing that in collaboration with um, Brad Feld and Mahem- Mahendra Ramsangani, who are our, our two VCs uh, that wrote an, uh, an early edition of that book uh, seven or eight years ago. So we're doing a, a new one that's going to address a lot of these topics in detail. But I'll tell you just real quickly, because I know we're getting yeah. to the end of our time here. Um, I uh, am a big believer in having a board and taking your board seriously from day one, in having independent directors on your board on day one, Um, And my sort of rule of ones around board is that there should only be one founder on the board and uh, that you should have one independent director for every one investor on the board. So if you got a three-person board, it's founder, investor, independent. Um, You can have a three-person board with founder and two independents if you haven't taken on big money yet. If you have a five-person board, founder, two independents, two investors. I think that ratio is really important to having a uh, a healthy, a healthy board. Uh,
0: it, when you said about what if you have a founder and you own fifty-one percent and they own forty-nine percent, do they get on the board or they don't get on the board?
1: Invite them to every board
0: meeting, as an observer, but they're not on the board itself.
1: Yeah, I mean have have them come to every board meeting. You know, have them. You have a hundred percent of that person's mind share on your company, and the board is a rare opportunity to get other very senior experienced minds on your company. And taking up a board seat with someone else on the management team is not ideal. There are times where you have to do it. I get that. Um, but I don't think it's ideal. And if you're worried about governance, if that person says, hey, I own 49% of the company, um, you know, set some stuff up in the corporate documents that that person has to agree to Decisions about X, Y, and Z—they don't actually have to have a board seat. Use those board seats sparingly, and use them to bring in new advisory talent that can really help you um, add to the mix. Well, you know, you're—you have to have that conversation the very beginning, right? Because
0: that could be a showstopper
1: at the very beginning.
0: And uh, and putting uh, a partner in a partnership uh, getting together for sure. Yeah, and 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 finding those right board members because. I've seen so many companies where they pick people that they can control, and that never turns out well for them either in the long run.
1: No, I mean you want you want great independence, and um, you know the the reality in the early stages of a business is if you put someone on the board representing common shareholders, you can probably take them off the board if they're not doing the right thing. Um, that gets harder once you have preferred shareholders, and maybe independents are subject to both people agreeing on them. both parties agreeing with them. But um, you know, having um, a, an independent director who is actually an independent thinker um, who has the best interests of the all the shareholders, the company in mind, um, and who can contribute strategically to you, whether it's by opening doors, helping you, you know in in product, helping you in selling, helping you, uh, in, uh, you know, in, in, um, you know, mentoring you, um, it's just, it's just a great opportunity. Last question.
0: What has changed in running a company because of the pandemic? I
1: mean, I think it's too soon to tell in the long run. Um, uh, you and I were talking about this before we started today, Mark, I think sort of the balance of humanity and efficiency, um, you know, meaning the balance of being in, the, in an office with people and spending time with people as people and putting your head down and working at home and you know, just doing 15-minute Zoom meetings, that balance is, is tricky now. And I think um, you know, I think people have to, if you are in a situation where everyone's remote or you're doing some form of hybrid, really being intentional about that balance of, of humanity and efficiency. Um, and uh, I think that you know, that's sort of the biggest thing that's changed And just, you know, the one thing I advise CEOs on a lot around this topic is if you are remote first culture or a mostly remote culture, pay attention to your most junior employees, pay attention to the introverts, pay attention to women and people of color who might not have as loud a voice, who probably in an office environment might have your attention because you see them might learn by osmosis, by walking around, by overhearing conversations. And when those things go away, because you're all on Zoom in 15-minute increments, pay attention to those people.
0: I want to thank you so much for taking the time. And we've got to have you back when the next book comes out.
1: You got a deal. Nice to talk to you, Mark.
0: Everybody, enjoy your weekend. And uh, look forward to seeing how Bolster um, matures. Me too. Have a great day, everybody, and a good, safe weekend.